Hello, my name is Van Sneed, and welcome to another episode of The PS Plus, a Living Faith Bible Institute podcast that serves as a companion to another called The Postscript. Now, on that podcast, pastor and host Brandon Briscoe each week will speak with other pastors and professors from the Living Faith Bible Institute on a wide array of topics. Here on this podcast, the PS Plus, we'll take a look at some of those topics and we'll dive in just a bit deeper. On today's episode, we're going to continue our discussion about the King James Bible and specifically the Textus Receptus. So let's do this thing. So in our previous episode, we were taking a look at the Textus Receptus. Of course, that's where we're going to continue today. And let's first start by defining or redefining, if you've been listening, what exactly that means. Textus Receptus is Latin for received text, and it's also referred to as the Byzantine text, the Syrian text, the majority text, and the traditional text. One of the most important things that we mentioned last time is that Textus Receptus is not a single printed Greek edition, but rather applies retroactively to all printed Greek editions of the same Byzantine text type. So effectively, before 1633, no one referred to the printed Greek editions as the Textus Receptus, and that's because it wasn't until 1633 that Abraham and Bonaventure Elvizer published their Greek New Testament and coined it the Textus Receptus. We also spent a good deal of time talking about Erasmus, a Dutch Catholic priest who published a total of four editions of his Greek New Testament, again, later known as the Textus Receptus. He did so with his first edition in 1516, his second in 1519, third in 1522, fourth in 1527, and fifth in 1535. We talked about how Erasmus's work was influential on Martin Luther and subsequently the Protestant Reformation as a whole. And we're going to see this thread continue as we look through the next major players in the development of the Textus Receptus. So with that, let's start today's content by looking at a man named Robert Estienne, who's also known as Stephanus. He was a French Bible scholar who lived from 1503 to 1559. His father, Henri, owned a printing house in Paris, which was responsible for producing prints of literary works of antiquity. It was here that Stephanus became acquainted with Latin, Hebrew, and Greek. In 1526, Stephanus assumed control of his father's printing shop after Henri's death, and he would go on to eventually receive the official title of printer in Greek to the king and the royal typographer from King Francis I. Now, this name was pretty fitting as Stephanus valued typography and his printed works were known for their elegant design. In fact, his printed editions of the Greek New Testament had typefaces designed by Claude Garamond. Now, pause for the cause. If you don't know who that is, then you need to go look for the person who kind of looks like, like an art kid. I'm assuming because, you know, I'm 39, so I'm just doing the math here. Look for the person that's dressing like they're from the 90s but wasn't born in the 90s. That's probably your art kid. It's, 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 it, it may be a graphic designer, and if it is, ask them about Garamond, and they'll tell you a whole bunch. Now, speaking of the Greek New Testament, 
He edited and printed four editions. The first and second were published in 1546 and 1549 and were known as a name that I'm going to have trouble pronouncing because I went to public school. O Mirfica. Man, I think that's it. That at least is what the letters look like. Let's go with that. Now, these editions were based largely on Erasmus's text, and this is going to start something that we see where the men that are publishing these Greek texts are building off of what came before. Now, his third edition in 1550 was his most significant and is known as the Edito Regia, or the Royal Edition, and was significant for a number of reasons. Firstly, it was beautiful, like You can look at it online. It's really gorgeous. The first letter of each book, for example, has like an ornamental drop cap and there are all these additional illustrations and flourishes. It looks great. Secondly, the margins contain references for the 15 manuscripts that Stephanus used for this edition. So kind of like a textual apparatus to peek behind the scenes at what he was using for his particular edition. His fourth and last edition in 1551 is noted for its mundane appearance in comparison to the third. I'm not making this up. People said it's just not as pretty as the previous one. It's kind of like, you know, he made a he made a trilogy and and the third one was pretty dope. And then he made the Star Wars prequels and they 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 were bad. Not as bad as the sequels, though. Pause for the cause. If you like like the newest Star Wars movies that came out, well, I want to pray for you, my friend, because those movies are heart garbage. They're so bad. There's nothing good about them unless you unless you put them on mute and maybe enjoy the visual effects. But they're trash movies. I stand by every word. So the Star Wars sequels, like Stephanus' fourth version, weren't that dope. However, there's good that comes out of everything. And in this case... The fourth version is noted for introducing numbered verses into the Greek New Testament. Now, also by this time, it's important to note that Stephanos had actually fled from Paris to Geneva, which is kind of a big deal in this time. And this was due to the increasing persecution that he was facing. So he was associated with the Catholic Church but wasn't strictly abiding by Catholic principles. So he fled to Geneva, and there he interacted with leaders of the Reformation at that time. And so we see kind of, again, how the history of the development of the Texas Receptus and subsequently the King James Version is kind of it's kind of uh, married to really world history. Now, the next significant figure that we need to look at in regards to the Texas Receptus would be Theodore Beza. Now, Basil was a French theologian who lived from 1519 to 1605, so we're, we're creeping close to 1611. Basil lived in Switzerland and was a disciple of John Calvin, and he published his first Greek New Testament in 1565 and went on to publish nine more editions up until 1604. So, Basil is like the Fast and the Furious franchise. He's just, just, just when you think, They've done all the things that cars can do. It turns out cars can go to space. Who knew? Now, Stephanus' 1551 text was used as the basis for Beza's text, containing less than 100 differences 
from his editions. And over a dozen of these were changes to book titles of the Bible and didn't affect actually the body of the text. Many of the changes, uh, here's your fancy $10 word for today, were to diacritical accent markings, which essentially are used to indicate differences in pronunciations of a letter above or below which it is written. So how to pronounce appropriately the words that you're reading. Now, of all of Beza's edition, the 1598 is pretty significant, particularly as it relates to the topic of the King James Bible. When the translators of the King James Bible were beginning their work, they had multiple printed editions of the Greek New Testament to consult, so they've got a lot of data. In addition to that, they have previous versions of the English Bible, which we will not get into today. That's a whole other subject. So kind of think of it this way. There's lots of different ways in which the King James translators had at their disposal to make decisions about what Bible they were making. Again, they've got access to printed editions. They've got access to previous versions of the English Bible. But as it relates to printed editions, Beza's 1589 edition was the one most often followed by the translators of the King James Bible. And it also became the basis for the next group of people that we're going to talk about the tag team champions of the world, the Elzevir brothers. So we've mentioned these guys before, but Abraham and Bonaventure were part of a well-known Dutch family of booksellers and printers, 15 members of which were in the business from 1587 to 1681. So these guys were, were exceedingly good at their jobs. The family shop in the Netherlands saw most of its success under the leadership of Abraham and Bonaventure, which is one of the reasons why we're mentioning them here. Together, they published a total of three editions of the Greek New Testament, one in 1624, one in 1633, and the last in 1641. Now, again, as we've mentioned previously, it's this 1633 edition that's pertinent to this discussion because it is here that the term textus receptus is coined. It comes from the preface of the edition, which had in Latin some words, again, that I can't really say that good because I went to public school. And then later art school. So my knowledge is not super great. I actually don't know how I've made it this far in life. If you want to talk to me about like shape, color, value, man, I'm your huckleberry. If you want to talk to me about which Star Wars movies are dope, uh, I've got your back there. It, if you want to know about anything else that's like practical or useful, Bro, I don't even know why you're listening to me. You should go do something else. But don't, uh, because I'm not done yet. So what was in Latin, I'm going to read the English translation, which says this, quote, Therefore, you have the text now received by all in which we give nothing altered or corrupt. So again, the Elzevers have published an edition in 1633 that has essentially coined the Textus Receptus, and so all the previous versions to their version, which are using the same Byzantine text type, they are now retroactively applied the title Textus Receptus. Now, there's one last name that we should mention as it relates to the Textus Receptus and its development, and that's Frederick Henry Ambrose Scrivener, who was a New Testament textual critic who lived from 1813 to 1891. Now, he was tasked with printing a Greek text based on the decisions 
of the King James translators. And again, the reason why this is, is that the King James translators did not use a single printed Greek edition to work from. They had access to multiples. So using Beza's 1598 edition as a base text, Scribner looked at all the places where the King James translators used Beza's edition, which they did substantially, and where they used Stephanus or Erasmus editions. And once completed, he collated this into a single printed volume in Greek that reflects the King James translators' choices around which printed editions were used. Now, let's pause for a second. I should have warned you in the beginning that this would be a data dump episode, because that's kind of what it feels like. It feels like we just got a whole bunch of information. And if you're like me, maybe this is a bit of a heady topic, because we're talking about history, we're talking about art, we're talking about the development of a language. There's a lot of things happening that are kind of necessary context to talk about the development of this particular text type. However, it's vital that we understand some of these basic elements, especially as we begin to compare the Textus Receptus with an alternate text, which we've mentioned before, the critical text. And we'll talk more about that text type next time. So as always, I want to thank you for joining me for this episode of the PS Plus. If you have questions about the Living Faith Bible Institute, I'd encourage you to go to lfbi.org where you can find out more information about what it means to have a faith-based view of Scripture and how to get equipped not just to serve in your local church, but wherever the Lord may send you. I hope that this exceedingly nerdy episode was helpful for you, and I hope to talk to you next time. Take care.